the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office, and yet in spite of those efforts that began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree perhaps continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in the local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all. And so, really, the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so, I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent uh, Russian Orthodox, and into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do, you don't believe as I do, what's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society, Jim, that, that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today that, that equally, we, we, it's foreign to us, to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today as, as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the key, is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture, 
we didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We, we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government and everything, but, but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of, of the gospel. And so by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle, but we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and, and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships, and planting the, the community of faith there. And, and I, think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, uh, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. So we, the, the difference is, with the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I think that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy yeah. for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life. And that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that... It has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test. Um, look through your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ, and, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that I think Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be 
hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one. But it does, though, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do His work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Uh, just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and uh, now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on a holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're, they're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities, where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the church often has has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right, history shows that. I mean, look at the early church, just the very beginning. I mean, the church starts with these this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the uh, the Colosseum and, and given to the animals, and yet... And yet the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary-trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group, um, and we can't depend on outside money. But the uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> and, of course, and it's so been... Quite being a little bit facetious, but that, that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight-knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And, you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today. And yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. 
And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, right? War with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what his character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, Right. And holiness, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, on a, a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of these I think are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replace community with, with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples use to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when we when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives, rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. And then absolutely, I mean, I think it's I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square. And we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it, like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to, you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition, and so they're already thinking that. And we just kind of add yes to that understanding. It's it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can 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 quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating. And, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan, really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really, that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. 
Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that, uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President, Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Life Life. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to get into some exciting conversation. We welcome into the studios, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones. He is the senior pastor of Destiny Christian Fellowship and speaker on the broadcast Destined for Victory, which will launch here on KFAX this coming Monday at 3.30 p.m. That's Monday through Friday at 3.30 right here on KFAX. And delighted to welcome to the KFAX studios, Pastor Paul Shepard. Pastor Paul, wonderful to see you. Greg, it's good to see you. It's been quite a while since we've been able to hang out together in a studio, but I'm honored to be here. Well, an honor to have you with us today. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're gathering here today where, gee, there's so much going on that I think is capturing not only the the minds of Americans and believers, certainly in the San Francisco Bay Area, that is pulling for not only our attention, but I think a lot of our our stress and worries, whether we talk about the instability on Wall Street these days, concerns over the, the political direction of our country. And then I think closer to home for believers, there is growing concern about the moral and spiritual direction of our nation. And it's funny because we were talking off the air uh, before the broadcast today, about the notion of where our nation's roots are. Yes. Uh, historically, spiritually, we know the major influence that the church had in the founding of our nation. And yet today, that influence seems to have waned at a time where perhaps more so than ever before, this nation is desperate. For answers. Absolutely. I am convinced that uh, if we still want to hold out for the hope that we are at our core a Christian nation, uh, we certainly need to own and admit the fact that our nation is doing a really good pagan heathen imitation. And therefore, we have to kind of have the mindset, I believe, of the first century church that did not uh, presume that people would be open to the gospel. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God unto salvation. And I believe like never before, we have to get back to firm, solid preaching of the gospel, which is good news, not bad news, but good news, because it says that Jesus is the answer to whatever our questions and challenges are. Now, when you say first century church, because some people hear that and they think, well, sure, you're, you're talking about a period where it would with strong influence of the apostles who had walked and talked with Jesus, uh, the early days of the founding of the church, the spreading of the gospel like wildfire, the influence of the Holy Spirit taking the gospel into all these tribes, all these tongues, all across uh, that, that portion of the world. They had it easy. Well, I would beg to differ from those who say that they had it easy because they walked into uh, cities and towns that were thoroughly pagan. Uh, they worshipped false gods 
in big numbers. They had temples erected uh, for the purposes of prostitution and all kinds of things. And so we really need to understand that their absence of a knowledge of who Jesus was uh, presented the opportunity for the church to come in, not just with words, as Paul said in one letter, but with power. And I think we're right back there again. I think our prayer meetings, our Bible studies need to be full of people who say, God, help us to represent you in a way that is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can make a difference and let our light shine in 21st century America. The reflection of the church today as the church in the first century uh, also holds up the mirror of the circumstances in which that church was struggling and in the embryonic stages uh, learning to grow. Can we see a solid comparison between America today and the Rome of that time? I, I think about rampant paganism, heathenism, a government that was out of control, persecution taking place. Uh, there were a lot of those first century Christians who, who spent their days and nights in catacombs and, and, and hiding out because literally their lives were on the line because they were following this person named Jesus. That's really true. And the church in that day had to be wise enough to be in the world, but not of the world. I think about the fact that in his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul talked about saints who were in Caesar's household. And I thought, wow, what a challenge for them to be employees, literally, of Caesar, who represents himself to be God to the Roman world. And yet people who truly worship Jesus never compromised their faith, were employed there and were in Caesar's household. And I think we more and more have to see ourselves as living and working in Caesar's household uh, in the various corporations where we all work and serve here in the Bay Area and beyond. We just have to see that God has me there. It's not necessarily a Christ-friendly atmosphere, but we can represent Christ without compromise and with the love of Jesus and take it to this lost world. Some people, Pastor Paul, see that, that environment of, of persecution, hostility towards faith, such as what we're experiencing in America today, and they say nothing good can come out of this. And yet I have to wonder, we see so many examples of where uh, trials, trial by fire, in fact doesn't hurt but purifies I look, for example, at what's happened to the church in China, where in the late 1940s after the war, communists took over. They shut down all of the churches. They kicked out all of the missionaries. They arrested all the pastors. They closed down all the seminaries. And a church that at that time maybe had 80,000, 100,000 believers in it, today has upwards of maybe 80 million, 100 million. Who knows? Wow. I mean, those are just the government estimates. Wow. And that absent Organized church services, there's no camp meetings, there's no Christian radio stations, uh, there are restrictions on even what can be preached publicly. So much of the church has had to go underground, and yet it's exploded. And I look at that, and I have to wonder to myself, as we're looking at this comparison between the church in America today and the first century church in America today and Rome, if perhaps there's a degree to which some of what we're going through, these trials and testings, can in fact not not help to purify the church and even make us stronger. That's my prayer, that what we're going through now will catapult us into a place where we feel desperate enough to get back to the basics of knowing the the gospel has power in it. Believers have to move toward real unity. We have to stop fighting over non-essential things. We're free to debate them, but we need to 
keep the main thing the main thing, which is this is a lost and dying world. Its one and only answer is Jesus Christ. We exist. We're in business to represent him. He has given us the power of his spirit, which we have to tap into more and more every day and say, God, make us the explosive body of Christ that you designed for us to be. When you say back to basics, is there a suggestion there that maybe some of the church has lost its first love that we need to maybe stop for a minute and rethink? Because there's a lot of cases where it seems as if the power of the church is atrophied and we're going through the motions. It is about where we go on Sunday, but how we live Monday through Saturday seems to be a disconnect. Yes, sir. I believe that we have to understand that back to the basics means that Christianity is really not at its core a religion that uh, would suggest we would go through our rituals and motions. It is a relationship, a dynamic, life-changing relationship with the one and only Savior of the world. We have to get back to representing Christ, studying Christ, knowing Christ, embracing and surrendering his plan for our lives, confessing wrong and faults in our own lives, because I don't think we can uh, preach to the church until we're dealing with our own issues. I certainly uh, have a degree in that over the past several years as I've grappled with my own and seen God do some wonderful transforming things in my own life and in my own ministry. And I think we really have to let the world know we're not so much religious as we are people who are radical for Jesus, and we know he has the power to change our world for the better. If you've just joined our conversation on this edition of Lifeline, Pastor Paul Shepard joins us. His broadcast, Destined for Victory, begins this coming Monday and will be heard Monday through Friday at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. I'll mention, too, if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area, perhaps looking for a church home, check out the Sunday services of Destiny Christian Fellowship. They're located at 42326 Albrey Street. That's right off the Auto Mall Parkway exit from 880 in Fremont. Information available on the web, by the way, about the radio ministry at pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. And if you'd like to drop by for a visit some Sunday morning, you can check them out on the web at destinybayarea.org. That's destinybayarea.org. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline with Pastor Paul Shepard continues right after a look at this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this Thursday. We're visiting today in studio with Pastor Paul Shepard, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones. His radio broadcast, by the way, Destined for Victory, will come to San Francisco and the Bay Area beginning this Monday and will be heard right on KFAX Monday through Friday at 3.30 p.m. You can get more information on the web, by the way, about the broadcast ministry of Pastor Paul Shepard. It's simply pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. We were talking just before the break about this comparison, this sense that you have that we're really sort of beginning to see uh, a repeat of history, that more and more the struggles that the church is facing looks like the first century church and the environment, the, the, the culture in which we live today, certainly in America, is looking more and more like the culture of Rome back in the first century. Absolutely. With that, uh, this back to basics notion, do you think that really we have sort of 
accidentally redefined what it means to be a believer and as a result taken the power out? And, and I, I pose that question because when you go to the average church today, they'll sign you up for a membership class and they'll talk to you all about uh, what they believe and how they want you to behave. And when your turn comes to host the bake sale or attend the men's fellowship group, <laughs> things of this sort, and yet there seems to be a greater distance between what it means to be a member of a denomination versus to be a disciple. And I, I see nowhere in Scripture where we were mandated to go out and add members to the church. He said to go out and make disciples. What, what should that look like? Well, I believe the making of disciples means that we get back to the business of saying, what was God's original plan when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. What does that mean? I believe it means, number one, the church belongs to God. Its agenda then must be God's plan. And we really have to define ourselves. I think we have to go back to our mission statements in all of our churches and say, do we exist on paper for the reasons given us and authorized by the scriptures? And in many cases, we'll find that we have matters of importance to us that really aren't matters of importance to God. So when you bring up the issue of discipleship, that's my heartbeat. My job as a pastor in the body of Christ is to teach and train and equip people to live the life we were called to live. And therefore, we have to go beyond organizing well. It's important to organize well, but we have to tap into the fact that the church is is more an organism than it is an organization. It's got to have the life of Christ. So we have to have prayer. We have to have real seeking of the Holy Spirit. We have to exercise the gifts he's given us under the power that he's given us. And we really have to look at what it means to follow Jesus in every area of our lives. That following and what you've described as sort of the fundamentals of what discipleship really means says a lot towards the the empowerment of the church, the maturization of the church, uh, the church really rediscovering its first love, drawing closer to Jesus Christ. But there's, a, there's another tier, there's another impact as a result of all of that that I think uh, is, is, is important to, to discuss, and that is what it means in terms of the influence to the outside world. We look at pop culture today, Pastor Paul, we see a world that is struggling with its identity, a sense of purpose, meaning there is infighting, whether we talk about the divorce rate between couples, whether we talk about some of the challenges that we've seen racially in this country in the last uh, number of years. It, it, it is clear, I think, to even the casual observer that there is a world around us and a culture and a society that, that is becoming unhinged. As the church gets focused on what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, isn't that also going to empower us to have greater impact? Because at the end of the day, if the church cannot be about first and foremost reconciliation and restoration, it's all pretty pointless. That is a great observation. I believe those two words are the key to getting back on track if we're part of a body of believers that have gotten off track. We've got to look at the fact that God sent his son to reconcile man to God and then to reconcile men one to another. So that theme of reconciliation that we find strongly in many passages, including 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we're told very specifically 
that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And then we see many passages that tell us about the importance of reconciling with one another. That is crucial. I think we've got to get back to the business of that. And the other word you used, restoration. Anything that is wrong can be restored by the power of God, whether it is bad dynamics in a marriage, in our personal lives. God is into restoring. I often say that God is the ultimate recycler. He does not waste anything or anyone once we present ourselves to him and put ourselves in a position to allow him to do his work, the potter knows how to take the clay and mold it into what he has designed it to be. We've seen in the last year or so an increased focus on the, the struggles that our nation seems to be having in certain communities in terms of reconciliation. Yes. Um, and you know, we won't take the time to go into them all. Everybody listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it, and it, it, it dawns on me that if we as the church could demonstrate what it means for us as believers to be reconciled unto God. Here is a holy, pure, righteous, without blame or sin, perfect God whose creation has sinned and offended as a stench in God's nostrils in so many ways, and yet through the power of the work of his Son on the cross, we have been able to find forgiveness and reconciliation unto the Father. Now, if, if God can forgive us for the, the, the sins and, and wounds that we have committed to him, I would imagine that that could really serve. If we're really living out the totality of that, if we know what it means to offend God, we know what it means to then be covered by the blood of his Son and for God to so totally forgive us through that substitutionary work of Christ on the cross and can live out what it means to then be reconciled as the creation unto the creator, what an amazing model that could be. I would imagine there would be no offense then between husband or wife, father or son, one race or another that couldn't look at that and say, if God has provided a way by which his creation can be reconciled unto him, then that same forgiveness can then be shared on the horizontal plane amongst one another. I believe that is the key to reconciliation among people. We have to get back to the fact of realizing God has forgiven us and restored us to relationship with him, and there is no excuse for us to not be active in the business of reconciling one with another. Now, we can forgive people even if we can't be reconciled to them. And what I mean by that is uh, forgiveness is a decision I make based on what Christ has done for me. And so I can offer someone forgiveness in my heart, even if they don't want it. I have forgiven them in my heart, and I'm prepared to extend it to them in person if they want to receive it from me. And so there is always forgiveness. I believe we've got to be in the forgiving business and then as much as possible be in the reconciling business, which takes another step. It means two people have to come together, have to be willing to acknowledge where they've wronged one another, and then they have to build a new bridge. Uh, I once uh, wrote a book years ago called Build a Bridge and Get Over It. And literally, we have to learn to build bridges so that we can cross over into the lives of other people. But whether or not we're willing to reconcile, and sometimes that takes a cooperation that someone else isn't willing to give, we can always forgive. We can always have the love of Christ. Christ loved people even when they walked away from him as proof uh, from the rich young ruler 
Father's story. And so we can always forgive, and we should always look to wherever we can reconcile. Some of the folks eavesdropping on our conversation today who are familiar with your ministry uh, may have a question, and I want you to speak to this, if you would, Pastor Paul. Sure. If the gospel was strictly about reconciliation, wow, that in and of and by itself is so over-the-top amazing, we could talk for hours. And (laughs) books have been written on the topic, sermons have been preached for hours on it. But the gospel is not just about reconciliation. It's also about restoration. Yes. God doesn't find us broken and say, okay, you were broken, I now forgive you. He finds us broken, and then he brings about restoration. Speak to that, if you would. Well, I love the fact that God is a restorer, that when something is broken and restoration implies that there's been something broken, something has gone wrong, and that has happened, if we'll all just be honest, that's happened in all of our lives first and foremost. Mm -hmm. He created us for a specific purpose that because of sin we went astray from. And so all of us have experienced restoration in the sense of our initial um, coming back to God and him restoring us to relationship with himself. But if we'll be honest, restoration happens throughout our lifetime as we, as different areas break in our lives. We can have broken relationships with people. We can have broken spiritual connections. Some people once got saved, but they haven't prayed in the longest time. They don't read the word. They don't have a sense of fellowship with God. And so that breaks. We can have brokenness in our finances. Anytime we are doing and experiencing that which is not God's plan for us, we are candidates for restoration. And the good Good news is that the Bible has precepts and principles for us to be restored in every area. As a pastor, I never have to go into a a brain freeze and wonder, oh, what in the world should I preach about? Just look at what needs to be fixed that's broken in our lives, and I've always got something to preach about. And the Bible has precepts and principles to give us victory in those areas. Just a bit of a glimpse of what you'll enjoy on the broadcast, Destined for Victory. Again, the broadcast Monday through Friday, 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. More information about Destined for Victory on the web at pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. And again, if you're new to the Bay Area or looking for a church home and uh, would perhaps like to come and visit on a Sunday morning, Destiny Christian Fellowship Church, located at 42326 Albrey in the city of Fremont. And you can check out the church on the web, get more information and directions. Simply go to destinybayarea.org. That's destinybayarea.org. And again, uh, make a note on your calendar, if you would, Monday's broadcast, 3.30 p.m. of Destined for Victory with Pastor Paul Shepard right here on KFAX. Pastor Paul, thanks for dropping by. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you, Craig. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.